0: Good morning, friends. Um, I'm not preaching at a church uh, this weekend, so I'm going to continue a message series I started oh, several weeks ago online, really the story about Jesus. And today, uh, my message is called If You Only Had One Chance, and it's based on John chapter 1.29. We'll get to that in a few moments. But let me begin by asking this question. If I could tell someone about Jesus who had never heard about Jesus and didn't know anything at all about him, what would I tell him? Well, if this person was willing to listen to these seven messages I'm doing, they'd hear the same thing that you've been hearing if you've been listening. But if he or she was willing to listen to only one sermon, I think they should hear today's sermon, not because I'm preaching it or because it's so good, but I think it's because what we really need to know. I mean, there are so many aspects about Jesus that we need to know. There's so much more to be said about Jesus, and more is being said about him today than ever before. In his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, Philip Yancey says that a University of Chicago study showed that more has been written about Jesus in the past 20 years or so than was written about him in the first 19 centuries. I mean, Jesus is easily and without a doubt the most talked about and the most scrutinized character in all of history. But if it all came down to one message, I think today's message would be the message that I would want to hear. Well, let me give you the setting of today's message. We all know Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and then he lived for a while with Mary and Joseph in Egypt, and then he returned to live in Israel, in the region of Galilee, in a little town called Nazareth. We know almost nothing about the early years of Jesus' life, with the exception of one story from his childhood. When Jesus was 12, he and Mary and Joseph traveled to Jerusalem with a large group of people. On a journey back home, they suddenly realized Jesus was nowhere to be found. Joseph and Mary returned to Jerusalem to look for him, and they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening and asking questions. And when his parents scolded him and said, We've been looking all over for you, Jesus said in Luke 2.49, Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? from there we don't know what happened for about the next 17 years or so until at about the age 30 Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized in the wilderness now some ask since John preached a baptism of repentance why did Jesus need to be baptized since he himself had no sin of which to repent so why did he get baptized well, there's plenty of speculation out there. Even John the Baptist himself wanted to know, saying, It is me who should be baptized by you. But Jesus merely answered in Matthew three fifteen, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, he said this is the right thing to do in this moment of time. I mean perhaps Jesus was baptized to give us an example of obedience. Perhaps Baptized to identify with humankind. Perhaps baptized to symbolize his death and resurrection. We can speculate about the theological implications, but the bottom line is that this is what we know. He was baptized because his baptism fulfilled all righteousness in that moment. The day after John baptized Jesus, he saw Jesus approaching and he said, and here we come to our text in John one twenty-nine. Look, or behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is not only not the only time that Jesus is called the Lamb of God in the Bible, but it's the first time and it's the key verse for our message today because today we're talking about the one thing Jesus came to do that is above and beyond everything else he did while he was here on earth. This is more important than the lessons he taught and more important than the miracles he performed. He came to take away our sins. <clears throat> Back when Mary first told Joseph that she was expecting a child, Joseph's plan, since he knew the child could not be his, was to quietly break off their relationship so that Mary wouldn't be subjected to public disgrace. But then an angel of the Lord came to Joseph and said in Matthew 1, 20-21, Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus." And this is the part I want you to hear, because he will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus came to do. From the very beginning, this was God's plan that he would send his son to save us from our sins. That's because, in case you haven't noticed, friends, we have a little bit of a sin problem. And when I say sin problem, I'm talking about the entire human race. And I'm talking about myself, and I'm talking about every one of you that's listening to this message. If you ever felt like you were at war with yourself and felt like you were alienated from others and felt like you were separated from God, I want you to know that you were not imagining things. It's true. This is the human condition. We are alienated and separated. We are broken. We are fallen. And, if you, don't have, and you don't have to take my word for it. You only have to look around. You see it on a global scale. Just read the headlines. You see it locally in the lives of people close to you. And and then there are many who see it every day on a personal level. I mean, something isn't right. We are not right. We are not as we could be and should be. Instead, you could say, as Isaiah said, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. This is the primary problem with which everyone struggles. And it's the reason why Jesus came into this world to save us from our sins, so that which isn't right within us can be made right through him. Today I want to just talk about Jesus being the Lamb of God, which means we're going to look at some imagery that some people aren't comfortable with. Some people don't want to hear about animal sacrifices and blood atonement because they consider it barbaric and outdated. Now, I'm the first to admit that some of the Old Testament concepts present a problem for 21st century thinkers. But we also need to understand that our faith has roots in a culture and tradition that dates back thousands of years. It shouldn't surprise us, then, when the ancient rituals and texts sometimes reflect an ancient worldview. God has always spoken to people where they are, in language and metaphor that they can understand. In scripture, we see how he progressively reveals himself over the course of centuries and over the course of millennia so that we could know him. It's up to us today to discern the truth that exists behind the stories and the rituals and the traditions of the ancient texts. Today we understand that animal sacrifice has nothing to do with being right with God, so we don't practice it. However, for the ancient cultures, animal sacrifice made sense. They understood the symbolism behind it. Maybe it could be, then, that God used this symbolism in ancient days because it best illustrates, even for us today the meaning of the death of the Messiah. So as we think about the ancient ritual of the sacrificial lamb, let's not do it with the attitude that says, oh boy, weren't those people barbaric and aren't we today so much more enlightened? Instead, let's look for the meaning in this symbolism, even in a custom that doesn't fit into our 21st mindset, so that we can learn what Jesus' sacrificial death means for you and me today. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. He came to take away the sins of the world, to put us at peace with ourselves and one another, and to bridge the gap that our sin created between us and God. Friends, the fact is, we're broken. We struggle with our brokenness, and more often than not, we lose that struggle. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can know what it means and how it feels to be right with God and with yourself and to be right with others. You can make peace with your past. Experience joy in the moment and have hope in your future. That's what Jesus came to do because the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Let's talk about that phrase for a moment. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For the first century Jew who heard John speak these words, two images probably immediately popped in their minds. Image number one would have been the Passover Lamb. Passover was an ancient Jewish celebration commemorating an event that occurred during the days of Egyptian bondage, somewhere around 1450 B.C. For 400 years, the children of Israel had been slaves in Egypt, brutalized and oppressed. Then God sent Moses to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. Pharaoh refused and resisted and continued to reject God, even when plague after plague after plague was visited upon the land. Finally, God told Moses to tell the Israelites to stay at home and sacrifice a lamb and smear the lamb's blood on their doorposts, because that night the angel of death would visit every household in Egypt. And through Moses, the Lord said in Exodus 12:13, The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That night the households of the people of Israel were spared. Soon after, Pharaoh granted their request to be freed from slavery and allowed them uh, to leave Egypt. So when the first century Jew heard John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they certainly thought of the Passover Lamb. Here's image number two, and that's the sacrificial lamb of temple ritual. Every morning and every evening a lamb was sacrificed in the temple for the sins of the people. This was commanded in Exodus 29. Verses 38 and 39. This is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs, a year old, offer one in the morning and the other at twilight. This sacrifice was made every day until about 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. The Old Testament ritual of sacrifice was never intended to be permanent and was never intended to be taken literally because the Bible says in Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The ritual is intended to be understood as a symbol of what would happen when, Jesus, when God sent Jesus into the world. The blood of an animal can never take away our sins, but through the blood of Jesus, through his sacrificial death, our sins can be forgiven. The idea of sacrifice may be difficult for us to understand today, but we do understand the idea of restitution. Imagine, if you will, a society in which there was no restitution. I mean, imagine how chaotic it would be. I mean, you could take something from someone and never be required to give it back. You could steal from your neighbors, never face any kind of consequence. There would be no debt to pay to society for your misdeeds because there's no restitution. You could abuse and mistreat people, oppress and enslave them. Nobody would hold you accountable. You could even kill anyone you took a notion to kill because there's no such thing as consequences No such thing as restitution. Well, friends, no society could ever function that way. It would eventually implode. Everybody knows that. For some reason, though, many think that even though no society should ever allow its citizens to live in a culture without consequences, they somehow think God should. They think that God is being arbitrary and ruthless when he holds people accountable for their behavior. They say, if God is love, why can't he just let people do what they want to do? Why does he have to punish people who do wrong? And then in almost the same breath they say, and why does he allow so much evil in the world? Did you get that? They want God to let people do whatever they want to do with no consequences at all. And they don't want there to be any evil in the world. Do you see the disconnect? Here's the plain unvarnished truth. We are all sinners. We've all offended the holy God. We've all done things that should not have been done, and we've all left undone those things that should have been done. And I think everybody who's listening knows that. Now, my intention is not to try to convince you that you're a sinner. That's really something only you can recognize for yourself. The problem is that some people can't see it in themselves. One of our prospective presidential candidates recently said, that he never asked God for forgiveness and he'd justify it by saying, why do I have to repent or ask for forgiveness if I am not making mistakes? <sighs> well, That's the way some people see it. The problem with the world is the rest of the world. It's not me. In fact, if everyone were more like me, this would be a better place. I don't know about you, friends, but people who have that mentality often go through life wreaking havoc on everyone around them and they do it pointing their finger every step of the way saying, It's his fault, her fault, their fault, never my fault. I should be allowed to do whatever I want to do. Every person in the world needs to encounter that moment of truth and experience that wake-up call when they come to their senses and say, similar to what G.K. Chesterton Chesterton once said, Do you know what's wrong with the world? I'm wrong with the world, and it's time for me to own up to consequences. End of quote. This is the problem that every human being must confront. I'm a sinful person and I've done things that I can never make right. There should be consequences for my behavior and restitution must be made, but I can't do it. I've never met a serious person who hasn't come to this conclusion. I need mercy and grace. I need a Savior. Well, friends, this is what Jesus' death means to us. When he died on the cross, every sin you ever committed, past, present, and future, every ugly thing you did and every decent thing you avoided doing, every hateful word you said, every filthy thing you thought, every heart you broke, every spirit you crushed, every weak person you took advantage of, every good person you attempted to sabotage, every time you turned your back on someone in need and every time you exploited a situation to your own advantage, every time you cut someone down to size and every time you tried to puff yourself up, Every time you lied, every time you stole, every time you looked at a person of the opposite sex as if they're nothing but an object, and every time you shook your fist at God as if you know so much more about the world than he could possibly know, every sin in your past, present, and future was placed upon Jesus as he hung on a cruel Roman cross located in a dump on the outskirts of town. And while he hung upon that cross, the restitution that you should have to pay to your heavenly Father for the things. You have done, he paid. He was the spotless lamb paying the price for a sinful world. That's why the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 53, verse 6, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus came into the world to die on the cross for your sins. And if you think your sins are insignificant or even non-existent, you'll have a hard time understanding what his death really means. But if you have ever had cause to despair for the person you've been and the things you've done, I want to tell the best news you will ever hear. Jesus paid it all in full. That crimson stain that sin left upon your soul, it has been washed clean. That's why God said to the prophet Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. We may not understand certain aspects of these ancient rituals, and maybe some things about them get in the way of our modern day sensibilities. But one thing every honest person here who's listening will admit I know what it's like to come to the end of myself. I know what it's like to be burdened by sin and to owe a debt I cannot pay. Friends, I want you to know that today your debt can be paid in full. In fact, I want you to know that your debt has been paid in full. You only have to receive it. Just like our culture is a culture in which consequences must be faced and restitution must be paid, it's the same in the spiritual world. There are spiritual consequences to be faced and spiritual restitution that must be made. But unlike our society, which is often erratic and unjust, the God of this universe is holy and good and merciful and kind, even when we don't deserve it. He wants so much for you to be at peace with Him, and at peace with yourself, and at peace with your past, and at peace with others, that He sent His Son into this world to do the, um, to do the unimaginable, to make restitution for all the wrong you've done. As John wrote in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 2, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Another way to say it is this. He paid what he did not owe, because I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away, and now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now you can say, precious Lamb of God, take away my sin.